Hey there, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick, exciting announcement to share with all of you. For the first time on Time for Coffee, we have a free giveaway to offer you. In honor of the season of giving that we're all immersed in right now, I am so excited to tell you that Time for Coffee has 50 global giving gift cards with $25 already loaded on them to give out to Java junkies between now and Christmas. In case you're not familiar with global giving, it's the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits, donors, and companies in nearly every country around the world. These gift cards will make wonderful stocking stuffers or thank you gifts or secret Santa presents to give your colleagues or your professors or guidance counselors, your mentors, your mailman, you get the idea. Even that cute guy or girl you want to get to know better but don't want to give them something romantic, at least not yet. The way these gift cards work is that you can redeem them by going on to the Global Giving website and picking any of the hundreds of different amazing projects Global Giving is featuring in countries around the world. Then your $25 gift card can be used to support any of these projects. And the gift card is non-denominational with a super festive holiday vibe. And all you have to do to win one of these electronic gift cards is to email me at andrea at time the number four coffee.org. That's Andrea at time the number four coffee.org. Just say, hey, I'd love a global giving gift card. And the first 50 people to hit me up for one of these gift cards will get it in their email box on Monday, December 17th, giving you plenty of time to figure out who you want to give it to. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy holidays and enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Hope you're having an awesome day today and that you are fully caffeinated and ready because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And if you're interested in a career in politics or social activism or frankly, any kind of activism or want to just influence other people, my guest today is one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet about how to do that. Dr. Alan Rosenblatt is a social media and online advocacy strategist, professor, and thought leader. He is a principal at Turner 4D, leading their digital strategy practice, director of digital research at Lake Research Partners, and he's an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins American and GW, where he teaches courses on internet politics. Dr. Rosenblatt, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am very caffeinated and very ready to go. Awesome. Let's jump into the very beginning, knowing that the Java junkies who listen to this show are probably among the most social media savvy demographic today. What do you think would surprise them about social media that they don't know? I think the big distinction is that there's a difference between knowing how to use it 
and knowing how to use it strategically. So a lot of people I come across, not just young people, but of all ages, they know how to tweet, they know how to use Facebook. But if you ask them, have you ever strategically built out the audience you want? Or have you ever used social media to promote and recruit people to an attended event or to vote a certain way? You know, these are strategic outcomes, goals. They've never done anything like that. And when you start digging down into the tactics to do those things, a lot of that is new to them. How can they think about the audience that they're cultivating, the followers that they're cultivating? In general, from the perspective of building your audience, it's important to figure out first, well, who do you want in your audience? And then use the various tools that are online, Google, the searches within the social media platforms, but also looking for websites for organizations and people who are doing work in the area that you care about. Find out what their Twitter handles are, follow them, retweet them, engage them in conversations. Each time you do those kinds of things, add them to Twitter lists. Each time you do those kinds of things, you increase the chance that they follow you back. Once they follow you back, you want to even go further and continue to retweet them and engage them in conversation. And and ask questions, answer questions, add value to what they're doing so that you not only get them to be in your audience, but you deepen your relationship with them as a member of your audience, as a member of your community, so that you exchange value. So it's really about that value exchange. So that's sort of the tactical side of that. Once you have them connected on Twitter, where a lot of the influencers are, you can start to focus on connecting with people on Facebook, which is a little different kind of approach. If you're trying to build up these tactical and strategic skills. If you're in school still, join an organization and help organize events, help build out their social media channels, and start to do those kinds of things I described a moment ago for a college organization or for a high school organization, or however old you might be, or if you're already on the job market, if you join an indivisible group, or if you join a local community organization, get involved in that and start practicing. As you build up those skills, you become better and better at them and more marketable in the job market. So for those Java junkies who are still in college now and are interested in building a career in politics and public affairs, communications, PR, social activism, whatever it is, you mentioned joining groups, which is a great suggestion. But what about classes? Are there certain classes that they should try to take in school? And if their school doesn't offer it, where can they go online maybe to better educate themselves? Sure. So there are some schools that are offering courses in digital strategy, an increasing number of them. Oftentimes, those courses are more focused in the technical IT side. I would not focus on those for at least the career that I have. It's more about the communication side. So you look in the communications program, look in some of the practical political management programs, and look for courses on digital engagement, look for courses on social media strategy. You'll find some of those at some universities. But at a more general level, I think studying communication and persuasion is a good thing. I found in philosophy courses on logic and courses on evidence and epistemology are fantastic because that gives you really great skills on how to structure arguments. It gives you really great skills on how to identify and formulate and use evidence. How you construct those communications are really valuable. You can even get a lot of value out of studying propaganda, film, TV production in school, or even just writing courses where you're learning how to construct stories, where you're learning how to make an argument, where you're learning how to connect with people and identify with them and connect with them on a deeper level than just talking at them. Any courses that allow you to do that is great. And then on the other side, I think it's really important to have some expertise and to take courses on issues that really matter. 
matter to you and build up your knowledge base so that when it comes time to do persuasion and outreach on those issues, you know what you're talking about. And so by that, when you say build up your expertise, you're saying kind of in whatever lights your fire, whatever it is that you feel passionately about. Yeah. Joseph Campbell once wrote that you should follow your bliss, that if you do what you love for a job, you never have to work a day in your life. I'm a big believer in that. Now, not everybody has the luxury of that kind of career, but if you can make it work, that's great. So when you figure out what matters to you and you build up your expertise in what matters to you, and then you pursue jobs and career in that space, you're doing something that matters to you. And I think it's really a nice way to live your life. I completely agree. For those Java junkies who are still in school right now, what are the specific skill sets that are going to be most useful to them if they want to get into this career? Whether you're going into digital social media strategy field in particular, or politics or PR or marketing generally, or even being a policy expert, more generally, or a politician. I firmly believe that if you don't know how to use social media strategically, you are eminently less hireable. And I've ruffled a lot of feathers with students over the years where I say, if you don't know how to use Twitter, Facebook, social media effectively, if you're not there building your own audience, I would never hire you. And a lot of people never would, and you'll never be as good at your job as you could be. That doesn't mean you can't be good at your job, right? There are all sorts of other skills that are really important in a lot of different careers. But Social media is a way to take what you're doing and let the world know what matters and persuade them. It also is a way to build your own reputation. I think one of the biggest things that I've done and that I would recommend for people building, uh, preparing themselves for a career and evolving in their career is to build a body of work. And if you build a body of work, and that's writing blogs or articles about what your expertise is, doing it and managing projects and documenting that so that when you go to say, I want a job running social media or running online advocacy or being a policy expert or being a reporter, that I have something to show that I can do this, I've done this, not only have I created the content in the product, but I also know how to promote it. Just look at the journalism field, which you've been in for years. These days, the revenue for the news media has shrunk tremendously. It's created a great challenge. And a lot of senior journalists have lost their jobs as a result of it or gone off on their own. Increasingly, I believe that a reporter that gets hired that can come to the job with their own audience to bring their own eyeballs of trusted readers, trusted viewers, can walk into a job interview and command a greater likelihood of getting hired, command a higher salary. When they're on the job, they can get better assignments, better beats, better stories, and more promotion because they're not just producing content for the publication, but they're also bringing readers, bringing viewers, bringing in lots. There was a time when the media sort of struggled with that and they sort of tried to squash the individual, say, no, no, you work for us. Don't do that. You're scooping us. And eventually, and I think by and large, they've realized that there's a symbiotic relationship, that an organization that hires a lot of people that know how to use social media to promote their own work are hiring people that will promote the organization or the company's work too. And as both rise, both benefit. So I think those are really key elements and you can apply that to all the different fields. So what would be a significant number of followers? And I know yeah. that a lot of young people are on Instagram. You haven't mentioned that yet. You say social media, you're right. talking Facebook and Twitter. You haven't mentioned LinkedIn. Which 
of these platforms should they be focusing in a strategic way their time and energy on cultivating to leverage for that new job? The issue of how many followers or what your followership should be, I always bristle at how many. It's not about how many, it's about how good. Do you have the right people following you? You know, if you're trying to influence the local policy in your town about dog parks, then if you have 10 people following you on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram, and it's the mayor half the city council and the dog catcher, you're okay. You're going to have a quite an effective ability to influence. If you have a bunch of activists, dog owners in the community who will amplify your voices and reinforce what you're saying to those people, even better. If you have a lot of people following you who have nothing to do with the issue you're working on, who don't live in your town, that's nice, but it doesn't help you. So I think it's much more important to think about who your audience is, who you need in your audience, and let the size of the audience grow from there. That's number one. In terms of what platforms to use, I think you're absolutely right. I haven't mentioned Instagram or LinkedIn yet, but I do think they're very important. I'm on pretty much every social media platform that exists, ones you've never heard of. I'm now on Kaleo or some new one. I haven't even checked it. I just created an account. <laughs> I'm even on Gab.ai, where all of the alt-right and white supremacists move, just so I can see what kind of horrific things are being said there. But I think the big ones are, of course, Twitter is great for influencing and connecting with the media, lawmakers, policy experts, and opinion leaders. It's an agenda-setting audience. So if you want to influence the people who are going to take information and viewpoints and then spread it out through Facebook, other social media, newspapers, in-person speeches, this is a great place to get that message to the right people. Facebook is a great place to connect with the rank-and-file large audience of activists and citizens and concerned people. But it's also has always been very niche structured. Things can spread, but it's not a broadcast channel. It's not a public channel. It's very sort of ghettoized in many ways and changes all the time. And that makes it very difficult. So right now, some of the changes that are going on on Facebook make it harder to get benefit from organizations collaborating with organizations. Now organizations are really being forced to collaborate with the people who are in their audience, which is the way it should be, I think. But again, Facebook isn't designed to have mass broadcasts out to large audiences unless you pay for it. And it's a business, right? So there's that. Instagram is fantastic for reaching younger audiences, but it's also a very large platform. It's very visually oriented. The challenge with Instagram for activism and campaigns in general is that when you post something on Instagram, you can't put a link in it. Unless you pay to promote it, then you can put a link in it. You can put in the caption to check the link that you have in the bio. So it's a two-step process. But remember, every time you have somebody go from click from here to something else, you can expect to lose at least half your audience on every click. So it's problematic in that respect. But a lot of organizations are using Instagram to push out that messaging. And then they swap out the link in their bio according to what they're trying to put at the moment. That's one approach to do it. But in terms of branding and persuasion, it's fantastic because it reaches a large audience, reaches is a young audience, so you're getting people early in their lives, and what you set with them sticks around for a long time. It also doesn't have sharing, right? So you can like a piece, you can share it to Facebook or Twitter, but you can't share it with your friends on Instagram. So there are some, a lot of these things that are really great about other social networks for advocacy and, mm -hmm. and political mm -hmm. campaigns that are not there for Instagram. But because of that young audience and everybody wanting to reach it, it's really, really powerful. Snapchat is another platform that reaches that audience, but I'm a strong believer that that's people who want 
to talk to their friends and not hear from people they don't know. It's a peer-to-peer platform more than anything. And I agree with Kylie Jenner that the changes they made earlier this year have made it completely unintuitive and they may have shot themselves in the foot. And Instagram hits that same audience and then some. LinkedIn, I think, is fantastic. And for anybody looking to pursue a career, obviously, you need to have LinkedIn where you put your own resume, your own job experience, where you look for jobs, where you're doing job networking. That's really important. But about two, three years ago, the social feed, the updates, became more heavily trafficked than the job searches. So LinkedIn built that network of a couple hundred million professionals, college educated by and large, working in careers, high level as well as mid-level and entry level, and built that community and then unleashed this social component to it that was always there, but really pushed it. And now all of a sudden you have a social network where people are sharing ideas and where you can reach people, but it's that very focused professional community. That said, the type of messaging you do on LinkedIn is different because it's more professional, it's more technical. In fact, when you write blog posts on LinkedIn, longer, more technically in the weeds does better. And not only does it do better because the audience is interested in it, but also the LinkedIn editorial board, when they see one of those articles take off, they will share it with their email list, either to a niche community of a million or to all 150, 200 million. I had no idea there was an editorial board at LinkedIn. It's not pitchable. So that means that if you're going to post long form content to LinkedIn, you want to make sure you not only push it out through your LinkedIn network, but you also push it out through your Twitter network, you push it out through your Facebook network, push it out through your other channels, maybe if you have an email list, so that you can drive traffic to it, get more buzz on the page, which increases the likelihood that the editorial board sees it. Let me ask you about LinkedIn, because I think for Java junkies in general, that is probably one of the platforms that they are most I don't want to say uninformed, but they have more questions about how to use it. I know a lot of young people establish LinkedIn profiles, but then don't really do much. And when you're in your early 20s, how can you use it such that you are building your profile in a way that is strategic for the audience? that you want to reach. So let's back up a little bit and talk about just general professional networking. We go to networking events, receptions, conferences, meetings. We meet people through work or through these other external events. We exchange business cards which you should always have a business card. You should exchange them and you should collect from other people, people who are in spaces that are either potential clients, potential hires, potential collaborators, or just good people to know for referrals and things like that. You build that network. You also use your email. Make sure that your email address, your signature, automatically includes all of your social network connections and a description of who you are. Because every time you send out an email, you're advertising yourself, right? And every time you receive an email, most of the time you're getting other people are doing the same thing. So you're collecting business cards, you're collecting email signatures in this whole process. And every one of those people you should go search for on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with them. And on LinkedIn, you want to send them a LinkedIn request to connect and you're starting to build your network. When they reply and they confirm, send a little message when you request, send a thank you, a follow-up. If it's somebody you want to have an informational interview with, ask. You know, And they may just say, well, I don't have really time to do that, but if you've got questions, email me. And if you have their email address, you can do that as well. But LinkedIn is sort of that place where they can keep tabs once you've connected with them. Then as you post updates about what's happening in the world and your specialty that you want to comment on, longer form articles that you want, a blog post that you want to write, all of a sudden, these people who are in your network on LinkedIn are notified that you've posted something. Not all of them are going to read it, 
But a lot of them are going to see that you're active. Some of them are going to click through and read it. And then occasionally you'll reach out to them that way. So that's the way to kind of leverage the good resume up on LinkedIn, building a quality network of people that you want to be connected with, and then engaging with them through pushing your content out, reading their content, commenting on their content, and working it that way. If you could spill it over into Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, depending on who it is you're connected with, you're now connecting on multiple channels. There's a whole body of research when we look at persuasion and advertising and politics that multiple channels of connecting with people, delivering your message over multiple channels, engaging with people over multiple channels produces much deeper connections, much more likely that people will interact with you because it's reinforced from channels. Like an echo chamber. Yeah. In advertising, we have this concept called source amnesia. You may see an online ad and then the next day it sort of just flips away. And then the next day you see it on television, you go, I've seen that before. Which And that just that very recognition that you've seen it before, but you don't know where is an extra moment that you're thinking about it, which increases the impact of that ad that you're seeing there. Flip the order, you see it on television first or in the radio first or in print first, and then you see an interactive ad or Facebook ad. And not only do you get that sense, oh, I've seen this before and I'm paying more attention to it now, but you have a chance to interact with it. So that kind of dynamic works well for advertising, for campaigning, but also works really good for networking and professional development. Now you've just mentioned advertising outside of social media. If somebody is in school right now thinking about a career in advertising and marketing, and you know we've mentioned some of these other professions already, how relevant is social media? It's incredibly relevant. Just looking at the paid proportions and ratios, right now, most organizations, most companies, most campaigns are spending 10% of their advertising budget. The good ones are spending 20% of their advertising budget online as opposed to in traditional outlets. Increasingly, we're starting to see you know, there are a lot of really top-notch political consultants doing advertising. 50% of your budget online as opposed to in traditional senses. The cost per reach is much less. The opportunity for people to interact with your advertising exists online. It does not exist anywhere else. I've been looking at some organizations where they paid some money to build their audience in a very relevant way. So they built a really good audience with advertising to reach them with the right messaging to bring them in. And now that they have this larger audience, they're able to do organic, unpaid posts that dramatically outperform the ones that they pay for. So it's a flow back and forth. Sometimes you pay, sometimes you don't. The goal is to get to the point on social media where you can have huge advertising or reach or message impact and persuasion impact that you don't have to pay for because your audience is sufficiently large. It's a quality audience that you are looking for. It's the right people. They're engaged. They care about your issue. That's why they're in your audience. And so they become these huge amplification chambers instead of echo chambers. There may well be <coughs> Java junkies who are listening now who aren't interested in building a career in any of the careers that we've mentioned so far. Is the field of digital and social media something they should pay attention to anyway? And how relevant is it to them no matter what field they go into? Well, let's just talk about being an informed citizen. I think that it's truly important to be an informed citizen. And I really am frustrated by a lot of people who are abandoning social media because they think it's a cesspool and that they're not getting the information that they want. And my response to them is you're not filtering. You're not setting up your systems to make it work. So how can you filter? So the most basic and simple way, looking at Twitter, for example, I always go to Twitter because it's this great curation tool. And it's sort of that agenda setter that you can then take information you learn from there and talk on other platforms. I see them always woven together. If you just follow a bunch of people willy-nilly, then you're 
feed or what you see is going to reflect that. I use a tool called TweetDeck, which is owned by Twitter. It was originally a third-party platform. And it's just TweetDeck.com and you log in with your Twitter account. And you can set up columns there so that you have your messages coming in in one column, your direct messages on Twitter, your full timeline in one column, your notifications of people who reply to you, mention you, follow you, like your stuff in one column. But then you can create Twitter lists of specific groups of people or use Twitter lists that other people have created and put those in columns. Columns. And you can set up columns with keyword searches. And so now I have a column that is all focused on a very specific set of search terms. And there may be some junk in there, but on the Twitter list, I can create a Twitter list of experts that I trust on any topic, and that column only has their tweets. I can set up another column of people who tweet about that topic that I think are full of BS and that don't know what they're talking about and pretend that they do, and I can see what they're doing. I can set up columns, or actually what I do is I use the Democratic Caucus in the House, the Democratic Caucus in the Senate, the Republican Caucus in the House, and the Republican Caucus in the Senate. They maintain Twitter lists of their own members. And so I have four columns in a row on my tweet deck where I can see in real time all the tweets coming from the official accounts of members of Congress. I can set up my own list with their campaign accounts. I could put those next to each other and look at what they're saying in their official account compared to what they're saying in their campaign account. And maybe there's some discrepancies or maybe it's reinforced. I can set up lists of journalists that cover a certain beat. Or I could use a list that already exists that somebody else has created of journalists that set up certain beats and monitor that. I may start with somebody else's list and start building my own list to filter out the ones that I like the best and put them in my list and not the ones that I don't like. So my list ends up being more attuned. But I think in the long run, the best way to use the types of system is not to filter out the things you disagree with, but just to organize it so you can see the stuff that's consistent with what your viewpoint and see what the other side is saying. Because I am a firm believer that the health of a democracy depends upon being exposed to new ideas and ideas you don't agree with. And this filter bubble that we have, I think the tendency to unfollow people who disagree with you, that you look at the dating sites to only date people who you agree with, to only read sources that are consistent with your viewpoint, it prevents you from learning new things. It prevents you from being exposed to new ideas and you stagnate and you ghettoize yourself. And in the end, if everybody does that, the entire democracy falls apart because we're not talking to each other. We're not learning from each other. We're not compromising. We're not using the democratic process to create better policy. And so these tools are just so fantastic for doing that if you set them up to filter out the garbage. And there's a lot of garbage out there, but there's always been a lot of garbage out there. Yeah, just now, It's just it used to be in black and white and you could throw it away. Or it wasn't delivered to you online. Right, right exactly. It was yeah. delivered to your house in the morning newspaper. Or at the breakfast table. The breakfast table, <laughs> right. Right. So we are kind of flashing back to the old days here. And Java Junkies should know that Alan, in essence, helped to pioneer many aspects of the digital political strategy sector. And in fact, you taught the world's first college course on this topic way back in 1995, almost 25 years ago. What were you seeing back then, Alan, that led you to believe that this was something important enough that students needed to start studying it? So I'll start by saying I am personally evidence that you don't have to be young to know what you're doing here. That's important, right? A lot of organizations, a lot of campaigns think, oh, social media, I'm going to hire the young person. As I said, they don't always know strategy. And there are a lot of older people that really bring the two things together, number one. So I had done a lot of work in computers through my graduate school and undergraduate. 
I was familiar with computers because I had office hours and I was doing research using statistical software. And so I learned operating systems and all that kind of stuff. So that was one track in my graduate study. Another track, my dissertation was on presidential use of television to manipulate public opinion. So I was looking at presidential speeches on TV and whether or not it was able to move substantively public opinion on the topics they were talking about, not just the superficial approval ratings or sentiment. I wanted to go deeper than that. I finished that in the fall of 1992. In the spring of 1993, my roommate introduced me to Mosaic, which was the very first web browser. Now, I'd been working with the internet since 1988, but before Mosaic came out, the internet was all text. There was Archie, Gopher, Usenet. It was all black screen with green type or white type and bluish tint to it. And it was just text. You were running batch files and you had to rerun them over and over again. What Mosaic did, which became Netscape the year later, the first commercial web browser, is it did to the internet what the Macintosh and then later Windows, which is just ripping off the Mac, did to computers. So it converted them from text-based to visual graphic interfaces. I'm looking at Mosaic and I'm thinking, this is going to change the way we do politics. This is going to change not just the way we do politics, but politics is going to affect this. And there's this political dynamic that's happening here. And so all of a sudden, my head started exploding. I guess at that moment, I became a futurist. And this was spring of 1993, early, like March. And I was a professor at George Mason at the time, full-time professor. So I had the freedom to pick my own issue area. So this is what I picked. Probably cost me tenure because I didn't write a book because books took three years to publish after they got finished. And that's like three lifetimes in the internet, especially back then in terms of the evolution and changes. So I focused on teaching courses on this, doing research on it. I helped launch a streaming media consulting firm in Philadelphia called Media Bureau in like 97, 98, where we were producing streaming media for politics and for news and sports, entertainment, music in order to give our expertise so that we would then parlay that into live streaming content, daily programming from the Democratic and Republican conventions in 2000. We live streamed the first mayoral debate between Sam Katz and Mayor Street, who won the election in Philadelphia. We ended up doing all the webcasting for Mayor Street when he was in office. So we were right at the cutting edge and all this stuff. But the idea was I was seeing from my own research, you know, TV, electronic media, reaching large audiences and changing the way people think, influencing the way people think, shaping the political debate. And in this time period, we also saw the rise of 24-hour news channels, which already had changed the way we think about news and politics and the interaction there. So there was all this stuff that I'd been doing in graduate school that helped me understand this dynamic of electronic media reaching large audiences and new formats and structures and how that affects politics. And I see the web not just the on-demand elements to it and the always-on, by that point, elements to it, but the interactivity of it and the democratization of access to publishing and the ability to communicate with people. I always thought that calling it information revolution sold it short because it was a communication revolution and information was what we were exchanging. And that was the higher level. And so from the very beginning, I was thinking about it in the same terms that we think about social media. It's how do people connect with each other? What do they talk about? What do they exchange? How does that affect the behavior and the view 
viewpoints of the people on either end. And so I just started running with it. And as you said, I convinced my chair of my department to let me teach a course on the politics of cyberspace in the spring of 1995. Taught it for six years and evolved over the course of that time. Early on, there were no books in political science that I could draw from. I was pulling from cultural studies and business and other stuff. And then eventually, there were a couple of books about politics that were written. Somebody from PBS wrote a book on it. There were a couple other books. And then eventually, there were political science scholars that started writing about it. Still, far too few in the political science space are writing about this and building it in. That's how it took off. What about now? How is the field evolving today? And what are the changes that you're seeing on the horizon that would surprise us? The big factor that's affecting things now is a massive wake up to the notion of what privacy means and what kind of data is being collected online and what it can be used for and what it should be used for. The reality is that None of this is new. All of this data has been collected for well over a decade, maybe even two decades. And it's been the whole nature of customizing your interface, of targeting ads. It's always been the case. There have been a couple of breaches which have raised people's concerns. The Facebook situation was not a breach, but rather a policy that was poorly thought out that was changed in 2014 after they figured it out. But the ramifications of it have still in us now because the things they learned back then from that data that was accessible through the rules then have... You're saying about Cambridge yeah, Analytics? Yeah, Cambridge Analytics. I remember back in 2014, I was livid when I learned at a panel with a couple of Facebook developers that if I authorized an app to install in my Facebook page, that I was giving permission for the app developers to collect information about my friends. And I just, from a political scientist perspective from a kind of an old school perspective, I go, I don't have the right to give people permission to collect information about people I know. That's not my right. That's their right. And I remember pulling those two developers over at the end of this panel and said, how dare you? I mean, this is just wrong. And I'm sure I was one of many voices, plus the realization that the breach was somebody who got that data following the rules, then sold it to Cambridge Analytica and got a job doing it. You know, Facebook, as soon as they figured that out, they shut it down, the access, and they tried to get all that data deleted that was inappropriately shared, but they were naive in taking the word of Cambridge and, oh yeah, we deleted it. You know, of course, they had a backup copy somewhere on a hard drive that was used later. What people started to realize is that everything you do online is tracked. And if it's not tracked, the internet doesn't work for you. I mean, imagine if Facebook never stored your personally identifiable information, then when you log in tomorrow, you would have no friends because they'd all be gone because that information is personally identifiable that connected you to them in the first place. The entire functionality of Facebook is dependent upon using that data. What people don't understand is that for a long time and still, Facebook, Google, all these companies, they really care about keeping your data safe. It's upsetting to them when there's a breach or when they make a mistake because their ability to sell targeted ads, to make money, their whole business model depends upon maintaining the trust of their user base. And if the trust of their user base is destroyed, their entire revenue source is destroyed. So they never give away personally identifiable information. The whole system is designed so that the only people who can authorize giving away my personal identifiable information is me. I can say yes. Now, is everybody able to know what they're signing off on? No. Some people just don't get that or they don't read the fine print. But is Facebook selling my data? No. And they would never do that. And it would kill them if they did it. But now, because of these other 
ways in which my data can get out from Facebook, and it is built into Facebook, our trust in Facebook is being eroded nevertheless. And for good reason, but I think more salvageable than if they were just selling it. Alan, let me ask you this. How is the field evolving today in a way that is relevant for Java junkies who are either in the workforce now or who will be entering the workforce very soon? It's entirely likely that the constellation of social networks that are out there that people will be using in five, 10 years will be a different constellation of social networks. I don't think social media is going away, but I think that there may be an upstart that challenges Twitter, Facebook, options, alternatives. But the bottom line is that the tools may change, the platforms may change, but the strategy remains the same. The strategy that I think is the most effective, sadly, was refined by the white Aryan resistance during the Usenet days, which was just the old text message boards, was refined again by Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And we use it too. That's a tactic, right? And who uses it better determines whether it's used for good or ill. But the basic premise is always get your message out, always counter or correct incorrect information that's coming back at you, and identify supporters and contact them off-thread, outside the larger conversation in order to build your audience, in order to build your network of supporters. I mean, the reality is that that's offline organizing too. That's offline campaigning too. Those basic tenets should be applied no matter what social network emerges, no matter what social network you're using. The tools and tactics may vary because each one has new sets of capabilities, but what you're trying to do is the same. I just want to flash back for a minute to when you were an undergrad. And by the way, congratulations, because you're one of the few people that I've had the pleasure of meeting so far whose major in college is actually relevant to what they're doing <laughs> today. You graduated from Tufts with yep. a BA in political science philosophy. and philosophy. So congratulations. That, look at that. Yeah, It really paid off. What, if anything, did you do outside of hitting the books whether it's extracurricular activities, internships, jobs, whatnot, while you were in school that you think really actually was a good thing and that you would recommend that our Java junkies build into their school days? So when I was in high school in my first year in college, I was a competitive debater, policy debate. I learned an awful lot about arguing, researching, formulating arguments, public policy. It also is a great suck on time and my grades suffered for it. So it was good. But if you're not a good time manager, it could be detrimental. But it was incredibly valuable for me. Aside from that, I did have a job in the library cataloging books in the back rooms. So did I. <laughs> and, and so I learned about the Library of Congress database, the University of Ohio database, which libraries would use if the Library of Congress hadn't cataloged the book yet as a temporary holder. We have these books. When we get them, before we put them on the shelf, we load them into these databases so that we have this connection and so that they're searchable on the back end. And we're still using card catalogs at that point, but it's so early. All of a sudden, I'm starting to think, oh, we've got this database. We can search. We can find this stuff. And so later on, I was able to really understand the power of digital tools. Early on, it was the replacement of the card catalog with search terminals in the library. But ultimately, I mean, that's what the web is. You know, you can think of the web that every web page is a data record and every URL is its unique identifier, which means that the web literally is a large database. 
And if you think about it that way, it has all sorts of ripple effects. A friend of mine, Salona Bonewald, developed a project called citability.org. The idea was if you wanted full transparency and searchability for legislative process, every iteration of a bill would get a new URL and that URL would be time stamped and sequentially stamped so that you could go to the current version of the bill and look at previous versions just by clicking back or clicking forward. And not only could you see what the bill says and doesn't say, but you could see what changed between this version and the previous version. And that basic simple concept, which combines this notion that every web page is a data record, every URL is a unique identifier with the application of the citation citability in the URL for versions of uh, legislation can really help people understand reporters, researchers, and citizens if they want to dive into it and see how the policies evolve. For the record, I just want to say you got more out of your working in the school library than I got out of mine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You're a deep thinker. I was like, you know, punching my time card. So how did you get your first job out of college and what was it? I mean, all my jobs before I finished my PhD were within school. Okay. Okay. So I, you know, worked in the computer lab and then ran the computer lab that I originally had my office hours in. But a year before I finished my PhD, I got a teaching position at George Mason. So I got that in the night. Over the next year and a half, I finished my dissertation. So I ended up nine years at George Mason full-time, went from two years as a visiting professor to a tenure-track professor for six years. While I was there, I was building up that body of work, right? Writing about stuff, building up that network, launching some companies. And then when I was looking for a job after I left George Mason, I started working in the consulting space and in the digital strategy space and was able to interview with organizations that were looking to get into this space with that body of work and that expertise that allowed me to say, I can create the division for you and I can take you into that next generation of how to do the work that you're already doing. And I got a job first at a small tech policy shop, then at a state and local issue management firm. And then I got into a progressive online advocacy shop. And then I opened my own shop in collaboration with a friend of mine who had a PR firm. And we brought that together. And then I got a job at Center for American Progress, running it from the inside. Figured I wanted to see what it's like not having to be a consultant and scrambling for business all the time and built out a really cool program there and then went back into consulting when I left CAP in 2013. Fantastic. Now, final question here. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, based on the wisdom that you have today, Mm-hmm. What would you tell yourself? What would you do differently, the same? There's a contextual change. Because I did this so long ago, there were no courses that were directly relevant. And if I went back now, I'd be able to pick a school where they had a good curriculum that allowed me to learn specifically this kind of stuff. From a more basic level, I was not an attentive student my first three semesters. And I almost got kicked out of school because I skipped midterms in math my first year because I went to debate tournaments instead. I was not doing all my homework because I was having too much fun, first time living away from home. If I went back to school, now the one thing I would learn is that going to class and doing your homework on a regular basis means the difference of a couple letter grades. So I would probably have buckled down a little quicker. And it's not even buckling down because just going to class and doing your homework is not over the top work. And I learned that lesson after my fourth semester, I made Dean's List. And I realized 80, 90% of life is just showing up. That lesson I learned in the process of going to school. And now I already know it. So I think that's really key. But I think one of the things that I did in undergraduate that I highly recommend to people, and I did it right, even though I may not have gotten the best grades in the first couple of semesters, is when you look at all of my courses, I say about 85% of my courses were a common theme. 
So, you know, maybe a quarter of my courses were in one major and a quarter were in a second major, but even those were thematically connected on public policy and debate and things like that. But even when I studied science, I studied sociobiology. So I learned how science affects policy and social relationships. So that was related to the whole social science aspect. You know, even in my electives, I was looking for a general theme. So I came out of school really steeped in a lot of knowledge that was all interconnected to each other that I was able to leverage. Even now, I can't tell you how often I am able to pull things that I learned when I was in school into conversations and they're completely relevant. As an undergraduate, I learned about artificial intelligence in one of my philosophy classes. And I can have a very meaningful conversation today with people working in AI just based on what I learned in the 80s in college. That's huge. And a lot of people sort of let what they learn in school disappear. <laughs> we don't let it. It just happens, Alan. <laughs> Mere mortals. <laughs> well, I, I think it's just a matter of, again, it's that follow your bliss. Do what you're interested in. Take courses in what you're interested in. You won't forget what you learn. Take courses you're not interested in. You will. And I think that's what I did that I would highly recommend is build a curriculum that is as connected to what you care about as possible. Alan Rosenblatt. Thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community today. I personally learned a huge amount, and I have no doubt that there are so many listeners who are going to come away thinking about social media in a whole different way. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.